And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with best-selling author, Pastor Phil Waldrop. We're talking about the prodigal child. Perhaps you have one. Perhaps you're in that unenviable position where you, you're dealing with the pain and loss, but now the big question is, okay, how do I move out of this paralysis? How do we respond? And sometimes even within families, there are debates about, well, do we show absolute unconditional love? So if the kid gets arrested, do we bail him out of jail? Uh, do we show tough love and let them deal with the consequences of their actions? Where do we strike a balance? And, and toward that point, Phil, and I know within the book, and maybe you can share them during our conversation tonight, the six principles for getting the prodigal back. But in terms of the response, how parents react to this can either make a bad situation better or make it worse, can it? Well, we can, because one of the things that we do, and of course, again, going back to what we were speaking of earlier, if we feel guilty, we're more prone, I think, to make poor decisions and the wrong decisions. Take the matter of unconditional love. Many of us think unconditional love means that any time that you've got a problem, it's my job to fix your problem or to rescue from the pain of your problem. And that's not unconditional love. Unconditional love says my love for you is not based on performance. Um, If you're good, I don't love you more. If you're bad, I don't love you less. But love also says I'm going to do what is best for you. And sometimes removing the pain of the decisions you're making is not what is best for you. Go back to the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. Now, we call it the story of the prodigal son. I like to call it the story of a wonderful father, because the real focus is the father, not the son. When the son came to his father and said, Father, give me my part of the inheritance, I want to leave. And he didn't just leave the farm. He left the country because Jesus said he went into a far country, which meant he renounced everything to do with his family. He renounced his faith. He renounced his, uh, you know, his time with the family, any role he had there. And the father allowed him to go. Now, unconditional love would probably have, in the minds of some people, would have said, oh, wait, son, what did we do wrong? How can we make you happy? You don't have to do any more chores around here. But no, the father said, son. If that's the choice you want to make, I'm going to allow you to make it. Because the father knew that when he went away, if he had stayed, he would have still been a prodigal in his heart. And even when he went away, and he he ultimately was in a pig pen, which was the worst thing that a Jewish boy could do to his family and to his father. Even then, the father did not send a soup and sandwich. He didn't send a servant with money. It would have gotten him out of the pig pen, would have saved the father some embarrassment, but it would never have gotten you home. And sometimes we must understand unconditional love means I love you for who you are, not for what you do, good or bad, but also my unconditional love for you is I'm always going to do what is best for you and what to help you to come to grips. You know, when I remember when I was in the first grade at school, I remember telling my mother, mother, if you love me, you won't make me go to school. But my mother made me go to school because she loved me. Now, where I stood, that wasn't the best thing for me to do, but she knew it was, and she made me go, because love looks beyond what I want to what I need. That's unconditional love. I want to have you walk us through some of these six principles that you discuss at length throughout the book. 
reaching your prodigal, the six principles for getting the prodigal back. We, we dealt with the, the issue of guilt, I think, a little bit earlier on. But one of the other points that you make is this matter of removing barriers. When you say right. that, what do you mean? What I mean barriers is because sometimes as parents we do things that cause a barrier to be erected between us and our child, but even a greater level between our child and the Lord. And it's not always sin that is there. Um, for example, sometimes we as parents do what is right, sometimes we do what is best, but we fail to realize how our child saw what happened. For example, recently a man and I were talking, and he was telling me that there was just something between uh, he and his son, and he did not know what it was. And so we began to talk, and I said, well, if you sense it's there, why don't you ask the Lord for the right time to ask your son what it was? And he did. And his son told him, he said, Dad, when I was young, you had a job, and your job took you out of town quite a bit. You were away a lot. And you never came to my sports events. It wasn't because you didn't want to. You were out of town. And he said, I just still can't get over that I was one of the few kids who didn't have a dad in the stands at that time. And the father said he wanted to go into a defense and say, oh, son, you don't understand. It was a hard time. The economy was bad. It was the only job I could get. But then he realized that's not what his son needed. His son didn't need an explanation. But he said to his son, son, you know what? When I look back, you were exactly right. And probably if I had it to do over, I would have taken a different job. And when he acknowledged that to his son, it changed the relationship. What he did was he removed a barrier. He removed what was between them. Sometimes you get that by asking your your uh, prodigal, and when you do, you ask for their forgiveness. Now, again, they may not grant you forgiveness, but that's what I mean when I talk about a barrier. It is something that is between them and the Lord or between you and your prodigal that has happened. You may or may not be aware of it, but doing everything you can to remove it so they no longer have an excuse. Let's take a time out, come back to more of our conversation here. If you've just tuned in, our visit today with Phil Waldrop. Phil is a best-selling author. He's also a very sought-after public speaker. He leads one of the largest conference ministries in the United States. His book is called Reaching Your Prodigal, What Did I Do Wrong? What do I do now? The foreword written by our friend, Dr. David Jeremiah. The book, by the way, newly published by Worthy Publications. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also through Phil's website at philwaldrop, W-A-L-D-R-E-P dot org. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to our look at six principles for getting your prodigal back as our conversation with best-selling author Phil Waldrop continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with best-selling author Phil Waldrop. A look at reaching your prodigal. What did I do wrong and what do I do now? The book goes into depth. We're just kind of giving you the highlights today of these six principles for getting your prodigal back. And when last we met, we were talking about removing barriers. The other big challenge is, and this is where it gets, a little, I think, a little bit convoluted, um, Phil, and you, you sort of addressed this slightly earlier in that we want to extend to the prodigal, unconditional love, but sometimes we get confused as to what exactly that means. Well, it's true. It, you know, Again, it's not based on our performance, but one of the things that I think is important when you talk about unconditional love for parents to do is I believe unconditional love is a decision we make in our life and in our heart, but we make it long before there's a crisis. 
You know, when I wrote Reaching Your Prodigal, I told a story of two men who faced a very similar situation. Both men had teenage daughters who became uh, pregnant. They, they were expecting ch- children, and they weren't married. And both of these men lived in the southeastern United States, where in small rural communities, where it's still very frowned on even culturally when that happens. And so one father reacted in anger. He got mad by his own testimony. He pounded the coffee table, and he said, how could you? You know I'm a leader in the church. I'm a leader in the community. You ruined my name. And in his anger, he told his daughter to get her things and get out. And yet the man's pastor, six months later, tells the congregation that he and his wife have learned that week that their daughter is a teenage girl, and she's going to be an unwed mother. And he talked about how they were embarrassed, they cried a lot, but he looked at this congregation where this other man was sitting and he said, but you know, my wife and I are grateful that our, our daughter has, has made the decision to give birth to the child, to give life to the child. We're going to support her, we'll have her rear the chi- uh, child if necessary. I'll step down as your pastor. But while we are ashamed of what our daughter has done, we're not ashamed she is our daughter. And here are two men, similar situations, two totally different reactions. And both of them thinking they're doing the right thing. But the difference was the pastor and his wife long ago had determined in their hearts that regardless of what their kids did, they were going to love them the same. And so when a crisis came, they responded with unconditional love rather than anger. And I think as parents, when we have children of any age, but especially when we have prodigal children, that's the choice we have to make, to say, you know what, I'm never going to disarm you, I will love you, I'm not going to rescue you, I'm not going to solve all your problems, and I'm not going to try to fix everything, and I'm not going to do everything you want, but I'm going to love you the same, and I'm never going to disarm you. Many parents know the pain of dealing with a prodigal child, and will perhaps say to us, Phil, that it's the worst emotional pain, heart pain that they've ever experienced. And oftentimes, perhaps, would love to just sort of stuff it, avoid it, detour around it. And yet, in the book, you talk about the importance of allowing pain of wrong choices. Explain that to me. Well, you know, sometimes what I discovered when I talked to people who have prodigals, and especially prodigals who are making bad choices, you know, there's drug addiction, uh, you know, maybe there's alcohol problems or gambling addictions. They're making bad choices. And as a result, every time they get in trouble, they will usually call their parents and, you know, basically say, come rescue me. Come get me out of jail, get me a lawyer. And parents oftentimes will do that, thinking they're doing what is best for their child. But we must allow our children to face the consequences of their choices. Um, you know, I, it even goes back to sometimes when children are young, if they get in trouble at school, you know, our tendency is to criticize the teacher. Well, if you are to punish the other kids. Well, in actuality, we're teaching that child your choices don't have consequences. And the same is true when they're adult children, is that we must allow them to face the consequences. Again, the story of the prodigal son uh, in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus told that story, the father allowed his son to leave. He allowed his son to go hungry. He allowed his son to be in the pig pen to the point he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. Now, that's a child at the very point of starvation. Uh, it can't get any worse. And yet the father did not rescue him from the pig pen. He never stopped loving him. He never stopped uh, wanting a relationship with his son, 
But he had to let his son see, you made the choice, you have to face the consequences. Because the father had enough wisdom to know that until the son came to himself, he would never really get his priorities right. And often we rush in as parents to remove the consequences from the lives of our prodigals, and they're the very things that God is using to break them and to bring them to a point of repentance. So that's what I mean when I say one of the principles is allowing your child to face the consequences of their decisions. This uh, friend of mine that I spoke of earlier in our conversation tonight uh, suffered a lot from that, and, and I described it as constantly putting a pillow under this kid's backside every time he fell. Right. I see. You know, Very the point way. is going to come when you're constantly protecting, 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 and he never feels the blunt force trauma, so to speak, of his right. actions. So that every time he gets into a car accident because he was out drinking and needs the fender repaired, you write the check. Every time he needs to be bailed out, every time he needs an excuse, every time he needs to borrow money, and you're constantly there for him. He is never, ever, ever going to learn that there are consequences to bad or negative actions. Very true. And one of the things that's important to remember, especially if a prodigal is in destructive behavior, if we keep rescuing them, the the behavior gets worse, and ultimately it reaches a point where we cannot rescue them. I mentioned earlier in our conversation about one of the prodigals that I had a lengthy conversation uh, with was a young man who will be in prison the rest of his life. He acknowledged his parents always rescued him until finally one night he actually took another man's life. And, of course, when he did, he expected his parents to get the best lawyers and to get him out of prison, and his parents weren't able to do that. And so ultimately he faced the consequences of his choices, but for him it was too late to really, I mean, he can get right with the Lord, but he's going to be in prison the rest of his life. And so I encourage parents right now who are listening to us, who are facing that very issue, you're going to be amazed when you say no. Your your prodigal may get angry. They're going to tell you you don't love them. And, boy, they're going to try to go the guilt route because they've learned guilt manipulates you if you haven't got the victory over the guilt. But when you finally say to them no, you may be surprised at how your prodigal suddenly starts maturing and, as a result, decides, wait a minute, I've got to change my life. doesn't happen in every case, but in many cases that is the beginning of a turnaround for a prodigal. The other admonition that you share, Phil, within the six principles for getting your prodigal back is to watch our words. Boy, there's a tough one for every parent who loves to lecture. (laughs) Right, right. And it's not just a lecture. Let me tell you what I discovered uh, when I talked to prodigals. One prodigal said to me, he said, I don't understand my mother. He said, she comes home from church on Sundays and she tells me how bad the sermon was and how they just, the preacher is just so terrible. And she does not like the music at her church, and it's too loud, or she doesn't like the selection of songs. She doesn't like where they have put her Bible study class. He said, in fact, she spends all week talking about everybody at the church. And then she's in shock on Sunday when I don't want to go to church and listen to that horrible music and that terrible preacher. <laughs> and when I heard him tell me that story, I realized that sometimes our criticism of other believers, our criticism of our church, with the best intention in my heart, and we think nothing about it, is magnified by the devil a hundred times so that our prodigals see everybody in church as hypocrites. 
And so they began to detach themselves. And you know, I've even said to people, you know the very person God may want to use to get your prodigal attention and getting back in a right relationship with the Lord may be the very Christian you dislike the most. It may be the one person that just rubs you wrong all the time. But that may be the person that God wants to you, and your criticism of that person may push your prodigal father away. So I think we have to be very guarded about what we say about other believers, and even non-believers for that matter. But we have to be very careful with our words, not just to our prodigals, but in front of our prodigals. They listen closer than we realize. Finally, you talk about praying the hard prayers. Elaborate. Well, you know, one of the things that people ask me is, what do you see often gets the attention of a prodigal? And I discovered there were two things. There are several things that I mentioned in my book, but there's two things that I notice more than others. One is the influence of a friend, someone who comes into their life who has a heart for God. Might be a co-worker, might be a neighbor across the road, uh, might be someone who serves on a committee at the school. Uh, but someone comes into their life where they have a common interest or common passion, and through their friendship, that person who has a heart for God begins to influence them in a positive way. So the first thing you pray is, Lord, bring into the life of my prodigal people who have a heart for you. And then there's a second prayer. It's the hardest prayer you will ever pray as a parent or a grandparent. And the prayer is, Lord, whatever it takes. Now, we sometimes think about God breaking our prodigal, that our prodigal is going to have to go through some hard times. But what if the God wants to use our sickness or even our death as a parent or grandparent to get our prodigal's attention? Because the one thing, Craig, I discovered is almost in every situation where I talk to a prodigal whose parents who were godly folks or grandparents who loved the Lord, when they were suffering or when they died, that is one moment in a prodigal's life when he will pause and he will evaluate his life. And that's a moment that sometimes God uses to bring brokenness and conviction. Now, I'm not saying God is always going to do that, but I think as parents, if we're willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes, even if you need to take me to heaven, I am willing to do it to see my prodigal come back to you. And when you're willing to pray that prayer, all this other stuff is easy. Because I think that's when we're in a position of strength where we have taken our prodigal and ourselves and to the Lord and said, Lord, here they are. You do whatever it takes to bring brokenness and repentance, and we give it to you. And when we can pray that prayer and sincerely mean it, you would be amazed how you become stronger, not weaker, and how the Lord begins to work to bring your prodigal back to him. And at the end of the day, of course, we know that God has a heart for the prodigal. And you hear the heart of Phil Waldrop for the prodigal as well. Some important steps, some key insights in helping to answer the question, what did I do wrong? What do I do now? Reaching Your Prodigal, again, newly published by Worthy Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, usual suspects like Amazon.com and through Phil's website, Phil Waldrop, W-A-L-D-R-E-P dot org. And our thanks to Phil Waldrop for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage 
based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. Often and unfortunately, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose. In fact, three purposes. Uh, He said, we're going to make man male and female. And the first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are, um, made in our image. Our image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. In fact, when God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people. He wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? 
absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to, to give them instruction on how they were to, to function as men. And then he says, then I'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed. And so God always starts with the man. That's why in the garden, God said, Adam, where are you? Not Adam and Eve, where are y'all? <laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you, you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes. It should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes, men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet, in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians eleven three, God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man. A man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. It's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the, the continuation of that passage says, in husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, of course, if we look at that model, we realize, well, 
Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior. And the last time I saw a savior, he was on the cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really, to, really ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Clip Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have join us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of, of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus's lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table, to bear, when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what <laughs> what uh, what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and, it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. He cannot, he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the, in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, one thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom, and this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected now it's becoming a wound that won't heal and there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth and it's it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with and i'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. 
Well, absolutely. Um, as you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take can uh, start off maybe in our mind small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged and uh, you, you got to put some women on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before he wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriages, and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of, of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize, and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. At one time, I was uh, a guy ran into my car and uh, and and then ran off and then uh, drove off. So here I'm going around with a dent that I didn't create. And every time I look at that dent, uh, I'm reminded, I'm, I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong. But what that debt was doing, it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings. So I had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was a decision of my will. But what, what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two, they related but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person, uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's there's an individual, uh, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, one, you hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. But I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address 
the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there, in, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place can, has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the person who committed the sin needs to repent. And repentance, repentance is not just a word, it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit, that demonstrates you really mean it. You really meant what you said by things you do that are different, that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offered inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get the couples, I, I tell a man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand. Something small, but done regularly, because men are torrid for being inconsistent, that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and I, uh, when I say daily, I mean regularly because I know you won't hit it every day. But but let her know that God is a part of this relationship and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf, anything else. You, she, she can zero in on your eyes and she can share. If, you, if she's doing this every week, well, she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, make sure you are dating her. And by dating her, I don't mean asking her, what do you want to do today? I mean, you, you doing things that are fun for both of you. You can't discuss any problems on a date. That's strictly for fun and you do it on a regular basis given, I don't know, the realities of your life. Then I ask the woman to do one thing. Make a big deal about his fourth things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation and everybody's tank stays full and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.